to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. And for this first episode, I have the immense pleasure of being joined by the woman who coined the term white fragility back in 2011. The term describes the defensiveness that even the most well-meaning white people exhibit when their ideas about race and racism are challenged. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Robin D'Angelo, American academic, lecturer, author, working in the fields of critical discourse analysis and whiteness studies. And she's joining us today from Seattle, America. Welcome, Dr. D'Angelo. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. So your, your book, White Fragility, was published last year. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it, just for anyone who hasn't heard about it? And also, how has it been received? Well, I published an article in 2011. This was an academic article in an academic journal, which meant it wasn't fairly uh, very accessible to, the, to anyone outside of academia. But it did go viral, and it went viral internationally. And that uh, turned into the book, basically. I was clear that there was a deep desire to engage further with this concept, that it was uh, quite recognizable uh, for the average person. And so I developed it into a book. The, I knew that there would also be an audience for the book because there was such an audience for the article, but I did not expect it to literally debut on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has remained on the top 10 for 47 weeks. <laughs> so congratulations. Yeah, thank you so much. So, so I'd have to say that it has been very well received. That does not mean that it hasn't triggered white fragility, which is kind of ironic. Mm -hmm. uh, we, the publisher put some bus ads up in various cities and there were a couple cities who just said, no, we won't put this uh, bus ad for the book because the title of the book might offend white people. Mm. So it's kind of white fragility uh, triggers white fragility. <laughs> that, that's really interesting. Well, and I was going to ask you whether or not you've had any critiques that have come uh, from people of color in general, because I know that here in the UK, uh, there's a very uh, senior figure who uh, used to work in race relations called Trevor Phillips. I don't know if you know, he wrote a review of your book in The Times, uh, which which was quite critical. And also, given my own work, I always feel that, um, that I mean, I don't know how you feel. Do you feel there's a difference maybe when some of the criticisms coming from people of color on this issue versus white people? Oh, yeah, absolutely I do, because, you know, we have different positions in the same way that if I was writing about patriarchy and sexism, the criticism of men uh, versus women to that, you know, uh, I would hold into account what is the social position of the person making the critique? Uh, where are the blind spots uh, likely to be? They're they inevitable that we have blind spots. I think about it as uh, there are currents in the water that we all swim in. And when we swim with the current, uh, it's really hard to see the current at all. And, and let me add that, yes, we are moving our arms and we are working, but, but the outcome of those efforts is impacted by the fact that we move with the current. When we move against the current, uh, the current's very clear. Uh, we're also moving our arms and working, but the impact or the outcome uh, is different because of all of that drag or resistance. So, uh, critique from uh, particular positions, of course, holds different weight for me. Certainly there are people of color who uh, critique my work. In my experience, I haven't read this one you mentioned, mm -hmm. it's more the, the inherent um, dilemmas of a white person 
speaking about race and challenging whiteness. It's less that the critique itself that I offer or the analysis itself. Uh, I haven't um, come across a lot of critique of the analysis. It's just the political implications of a white person leading work, you know, uh, or one of the leaders of the work on race. Yeah, and to be honest, the overwhelming feedback I get from people of color every day is deep gratitude and thank you and a sense of affirmation. Uh, If that uh, was outbalanced by the critique, I I would have to seriously consider, you know, not continuing. But overwhelmingly, it's been appreciated. And I, I, I there have been people of color and black people in particular who have been deeply moved by hearing a white person admit to the things that we so rarely ever will admit to, right? It's very helpful with the gaslighting because people of color have been saying what I've been saying for a very long time, but the response is, um, you know, invalidation and denial. It's harder to deny it when I say it, which is one of the reasons why it's important. I think it's important for me as a white person to also be saying it. Which, which is interesting because it is one of those dilemmas um, that I personally have grappled with is this idea that, as you say, people of colour have been saying these things for a very, very long time. And the fact that sometimes they can only be audible um, uh, and intelligible when it's a white person saying them, uh, it, could, could that in itself, I've heard a critique, consolidate forms of white supremacy? The fact that we're still having to use a white vehicle for a message which should really be able to be heard from black and brown voices? Well, it's a little bit like colorblindness, right? Like, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were in a world where we really could be colorblind, but we don't live in that world, right? Like, yes, ideally they would be heard and listened to, and uh, they are not in the same way. Uh, So this is a dilemma obviously I have wrestled with. I'm very, very clear, and I also name this and and transparent whenever I give a presentation, that I am centering whiteness in my work, that standing up in front of hundreds of people every day, being granted credibility and authority to my voice, uh, on race no no less, uh, centers whiteness. And it's a bo- it, I see it as a both end, because to not use that position, that platform, that credibility to challenge whiteness and racism for me is to really be white, right? And I I like to be a little less white. And when I say that, I don't mean more Italian American, you know, I mean, less oppressive, less uh, silent, less oblivious and ignorant and arrogant, um, less participating in white solidarity. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a very curious way, whiteness stays centered by being unnamed and unmarked. So to decenter it, you have to expose it. And so, yeah, it's it, it's a mess. It's a messy <laughs> situation. Uh, we're inside the master's house, as Audre Lorde uh, says, and we're using the master's tools. And I don't think there's a clean space outside of these dilemmas. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. how I reconcile it. it. It is a both end that I that I live with because I can't imagine not using this position to break with white solidarity. 
Mm, yeah. And and on that note, I wonder what you think about some of the terminology in this conversation, because I know that um, from conversations around race and racism, that um, there is a lot of debate around what is um, the right terminology to be using. I have some friends who like the term black, some who hate the term people of colour. Um, I'm, you know, how do you navigate around these issues when to a large extent, the conversation feels like it's one in which the subjectivity of people of color is what allows them the authority to decide what terms should be used to refer to themselves? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, well, to take an, an easy one, between black and African-American in my context, you know, a survey show that it's somewhat evenly split with more people who are of that identity preferring black. I tend to use the terms a little bit interchangeably um, when I'm talking or about someone specific or to someone specific. The first thing I always ask myself is, do I need to name this person's uh, racial identity at all? Why am I doing that? <laughs> but if it's relevant to what I'm talking about, then I just try to use the terms uh, that people ask me to use for them. Uh, you know, it, it's there wouldn't be one term that would be right for everyone. And this is something that guides me, right? If, if you're going to be a public figure uh, talking about racism, you must have a thick skin and be comfortable with a lot of criticism and a lot of feedback. Mm. So what guides me is I couldn't possibly get it right by everyone, but I try to get it as right as I can as often as I can, by as many as I can, and always ask myself, how do I know? In other words, where is my accountability? And, and I just accept that, that I won't get it right by everyone, but I'm paying attention, I'm incorporating you know, new information, terms are changing. Uh, I've been saying people of color for a very long time, and so it's kind of a habit, but it's beginning to change to, um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. The acronym would, would be BIPOC or B-I-P-O-C. I'm trying to get more comfortable with, you know, saying that because that's evolving. So, you know, language is political. Uh, and so, yeah, we just have to keep up and do our best. And um, if for those uh, uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of whiteness, in a nutshell, could you tell us what whiteness is and perhaps how it is that you personally became aware of your whiteness and, and why it became such a central theme, obviously, in your writing? Yeah, well, I mean, we might need to start with white supremacy, uh, which is a loaded term for lots of people, particularly older white people, because it traditionally has referred to you know, someone you would imagine in a white hood, a neo-Nazi. For sociologists and people involved in anti-racist work, white supremacy is a highly descriptive sociological term to de um, describe the society that you and I, the societies that you and I both live in, where white is the ideal for humanity, that white people are elevated to the human norm and the human ideal, and everything else is kind of a lesser version of that. And I think about whiteness as all the dimensions and dynamics that go into holding or elevating white people as the ideal for humanity. So Ruth Frankenberg is a critical scholar who, I think she's actually British, who breaks it down in three ways. One, it is a position of structural advantage. 
Two, it is a place from which white people look out at the world and at ourselves. And three, it is a set of practices that are unmarked and unnamed that continually uh, work to position white people uh, as superior. Mm. And and so you yourself, how did you, I mean, um, having read your book, obviously I've seen that you would be identified as white. Um, how do you how did you come to want to have this conversation how did it become important to you i was your classic white liberal or white progressive uh, i i thought it was all about being open-minded i was open-minded i wasn't racist in fact i was so open-minded that i could teach other people to be open-minded and i applied for a job as what was called back in the 90s a diversity trainer and so I was on interracial teams going into almost all white workplaces, trying to talk to white employees about racism and racial discrimination. And that was like a fish being taken out of water on two levels. One, I, I was my identity as, you know, open minded and not racist was being uh, challenged by the people of color I was working with. And the hostility and resistance of the white people that we went to, you know, to train. Just years and years and years of that, um, I just got clearer and clearer about how all of this works. Uh, and I actually went on to get my PhD to kind of back up my experience. So I'm one of those academics that went from practice to theory, unlike a lot of academics that go from theory to practice. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't start out expecting any of this, but... It was so extraordinary, both, you know, for me personally and just watching the social dynamics and seeing how we basically pull this off, how we live in such a profoundly separate and unequal society by race. And most white people claim uh, that if racism exists, it certainly doesn't exist in them and it has had no impact. You know, the average white person can't answer the question, what does it mean to be white? And if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. Um, I'm going to most likely, as most white people do, invalidate uh, other people's experiences. And, and I need to say that everywhere I've been outside of the U.S., there's a enthusiasm on the part of white people to put it all on Americans, right? Mm. <laughs> I go to, I, I've been to the UK and I was on a book tour there and, you know, uh, oh yeah, this is what an American problem. We don't have this here. <laughs> you talk to virtually any person of color in the UK and come on. So I, I think where I would challenge white listeners is, you know, your exact history is not the same as our history, but you know, it's, you have a history, the outcome is the same and the dynamics are the same. I haven't had any person of color from the UK tell me that what I'm describing is not their experience. Right. Um, I, I've had people from South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, people of color say, Oh my God, this is exactly what I experience here even though the specific histories might be different. And so I, that's where I, I think white people have to take the initiative and, and look at, all right, what does it look like here? Not, you know, is it here? It's, it's there. <laughs> uh, 
And that's that's actually really interesting because I was going to um, push you a little bit more about these differences between uh, maybe American whiteness and European whiteness, or specifically if we because we're in the UK here, uh, British whiteness. And, and I ask that because I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the time in Britain, people say, well, you know, racism is an American problem. Slavery was an American problem. And there's very little recognition of the ways in which British history <laughs> and the, the, there's a lot of fodder there uh, to go through. Uh, has fueled uh, racism and a particular brand of whiteness. So I don't know if briefly, if it's possible at all, but maybe to give some sense of what are the similarities and differences between American whiteness and British whiteness? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how you can be Britain, British and not see the uh, profound history of colonialism. And, um, and when you, you know, I'll be honest, I watched Downton Abbey and I think about where did they get their money? Uh, uh, you know, this, this sale of kidnapped and enslaved Africans. I mean, your country uh, got rich on colonialism and uh, the slave trade, right? So it's, it's again on Britons to trace that past into the present. So, so a couple of challenges there, we don't tend to be taught our past, particularly if we don't want to look at it and it behooves us not to look at it. And th then we can't trace it into the present. So we think, oh, that was so long ago. Um, so I, I think this, the main differences I see, honestly, they're not very big. The differences I see is just in terms of uh, denial and silence. Um, the the U.S. is in a moment where during the Obama years, my work was harder actually because it, there was this post-racial narrative. Oh, look, we have a black president now. We're post-racial. Uh, I don't think anyone is in denial anymore that we are not post-racial. <laughs> uh, I mean, racism got an inf a huge infusion upon Obama's presidency. You know, all systems of oppression can account for exceptions. Uh, so. When I go somewhere like the UK, there's a little bit tighter narrative that, you know, you're post-racial and it's it's all in the U.S. And so, therefore, less talking directly about it. I, I'm pretty direct. And um, those things unsettled, which is kind of funny, right? Th those things will trigger uh, white fragility in, in Britain, you know, British people. Do you have any anecdotes from your time here of... Um, very specific forms of white fragility in Britain? Yeah, I, I do actually. I, I, one is maybe a smaller one. I, was, I gave a talk at Cambridge and then afterwards a young white man came up to me and said, well, that was a really great talk, but I disagree with you. And um, I said, I'm going to offer you a question to reflect on. And that is what qualifies you to disagree with me? You know, there's a kind of arrogance and certitude. I'm quite sure that young man, like most white people, lives a fairly segregated life. I mean, we might work around or with or walk by on the streets, people of color, but I ask most white listeners uh, who are married to open up their wedding albums and take a look, right? Our actual lives, our circles are, are pretty consistently segregated. And my point to him wasn't that there aren't people who aren't qualified to agree with or disagree with me. There certainly are. But I don't think he was mm -hmm. like where, that that humility that we lose um, 
I mean, to be blunt, I, I mean, I, I have a PhD in, in this area and, you know, I'm internationally known, I've been writing and speaking and receiving feedback and struggling and growing for 25 years. And yet, you know, he goes to an hour talk and feels qualified to disagree. Um, and that's a pretty common dynamic. Yeah, I, I would you imagine. Know, yeah. Yeah, I have opinions on all kinds of things, but when somebody comes in who's informed on it, I, I listen. So there's something that happens when the topic is raised. Well, I was on the BBC Afternoon Live. I don't know if you saw that. That was. Uh, oh, no, you, please. Yeah. T tell us about that. How did that go? Um, well, from that experience, I am very clear that I will not be on panels with people who are not qualified to discuss my work. So uh, they put me on a panel with um, four other people who had been discussing the Labour Party's uh, members' resignation from the Labour Party back in the summer. Yes, you know, over the anti-Semitism allegations. And of Was course, I'm not, yes, remotely qualified to weigh in on that. I, again, here's an example. I mean, I might have an opinion on it, but I'm not informed. So this panel was discussing it and I would say arguing about it for a good 30 minutes. And then they put me on the panel, you know, gave me about 30 seconds to say what my work is about. And then the host just turned to the panel and said, so what do you think about that? You know, again, they, they weren't qualified to discuss my work. Uh, they hadn't read the book and they'd only gone with 30 seconds, but it erupted in white fragility, particularly from the two white men mm. who, you know, one of them literally turned his back to me, sneered, said it was repulsive, used the word repulsive. I mean, maybe that's the way people talk in Britain, but I, I was kind of stunned and um, went on at length about it, you know, discounting it out of hand and identity politics is ruining this, you know, ru ruining everything. Same with the other white man. I mean, it, and then there was a woman of color on the panel who was trying to, you know, support what I was saying from her experience as a woman of color. Com they completely invalidated her. It was so textbook. I, I, you know, I could barely get a word in, but I, I wish that I had been able to say, and thank you so much for illustrating white. <laughs> um, so how no. do you, how do you bring people back from that? I mean, because I feel that I suppose having read your book, I really get this sense of almost like a call to action. You know, it's like, you know, it's time for, for people who are identified as white to, to recognize the implications of that label uh, in terms of their responsibility towards others. But as you say, and as you've clearly experienced, a lot of people respond with rejection and refusal to engage. How do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure we can get where we need to go from the mainstream paradigm, which is that of what it means to be racist. So the mainstream paradigm is that a racist is an individual who consciously doesn't like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them. Yeah. If you notice people's, you know, reactions and defensiveness, it's very clear. That is the average person's understanding of what it means to be racist. Individual conscious malintent across race has to be conscious. So, you know, never mind implicit bias has to be intentional. So never mind how much of the, the harm I've perpetrated across my life has been unaware and unintentional. Mm. Uh, and so if, 
if we can't let go of that and understand it as a system, a system that we're all in and that none of us can be exempt from, and that we need to change our question from if I'm racist, if the question is if I'm racist, almost all white people are going to say no, and therefore I'm done. Um, even in a society where we keep getting racially inequitable outcomes, right? We have to change that question from if to, to how. How have I been shaped by the forces of the culture I live in? What does that look like? How have I absorbed the messages that circulate 24-7, 365? And what does it look like in my life and relationships? So even, even listeners right now uh, may be feeling defensive because... I'm one, generalizing about white people. That will definitely trigger white fragility uh, because the ideology of individualism is very precious to white people. Uh, although racially only white people are granted individuality. And I, I have to push back against that too, right? I mean, mm. as a sociologist, I'm, I'm you know, quite comfortable generalizing about social life because it's patterned and consistent and predictable. I am describing a set of patterns that I think virtually everyone recognizes, uh, even if they think it's justified to be defensive. You know, I think that we all recognize these patterns. And then based on 25 years of research and experience, I'm offering uh, a theory on how those patterns develop and how they function. Um, and yet, you know, most most white people can't let go of that that definition that you're saying I'm bad. And if you just knew all these things about me, you'd know why why I was different from any other white person. <laughs> and well, yet, yeah. go ahead. No, well, I was going to say it's very interesting because I think the issue of understanding categories is a, such a major part of this conversation. So just like you say, the, the misunderstanding around the concept of racism. But even do you find that there's a lot of um, misunderstanding around just the concept of race still? And and I was reading an article recently in which someone was suggesting that actually because racial categories are, were basically completely invented and have no meaningful basis in reality or science that actually maybe we need to be thinking about new categories because otherwise people are still referring to these old categories um, which are then cementing these divisions which were in origin completely aleatory but now kind of operate as a as a as a power structure yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, there is no race as we have been taught to understand it, right? Um, I, but I'm not sure that would change it. You know, Ibram Kendi is a leading scholar uh, in, in race studies in the U.S. He wrote Stamp from the Beginning. Um, and he says love and education are not going to end racism, that, that it's really about self-interest. And th this is the question I always have to ask and it's never failed me is how does this function how does this narrative versus this narrative function right how does this idea that to be racist means you are intentionally mean to people of a different race how does that def definition function well beautifully basically to exempt virtually all white people from the system they're in uh, and guarantee that you're not going to be able to engage with uh, concepts like implicit bias and uh, a feedback. So yes, it would be useful if we had uh, more, if we were more educated on on even concepts like race, um, and we, we need to do that. But I think there's something deeper going on. Um, I, I see white fragility as 
an aspect of the sociology of dominance. I, I see it as the way that dominant groups maintain their positions. They make it so difficult uh, to challenge their positions that most people just back off and don't do it. I mean, can you imagine um, ha having to argue with two very, very aggressive, assertive white men, uh, you know, who are debating your experience? And and just because you give up doesn't mean you aren't right. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. But across power, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And so how do you respond to those people who, uh, you know, I, it's a very common critique. I've read it. The idea that this is just uh, cementing identity politics, that it's kind of reducing people to very narrow labels and um, encouraging forms of identity which are unhelpful to kind of the idea of a common good. Well, what's your response common to the good. identity uh, politics critique? Uh, I would say my work is unapologetically identity politics. Mm -hmm. um, that identity politic critique is really just let's all be colorblind. Let's all, you know, the common good. Do we see the common good um, manifesting itself or do we see vast and empirically um, documented disparities based on people's identities. So I, I think about uh, the right to vote, right? Can you imagine if, I mean, women across many, many countries uh, did not always have the right to vote. And if you don't name the group that doesn't have access, how are you going to get them access? So imagine, you know, women going to men who controlled the institutions and were because they're biased, by the way, women and men could both be biased against each other. But when you back men's bias with legal authority and institutional control, it's transformed. And, and that's my point about uh, systemic racism. Everybody has bias. But when you back mine with legal authority, institutional control, it's transformed. And so if you go, if women went to men and said, you know, we need the right to vote. And they said, well, why do you have to say women and men? Why can't we just say everyone should have the right to vote? And then we would say, well, yeah, everyone should, but everyone doesn't. So we need to name who doesn't. And yeah. and yeah, and so in terms of uh, the critique that it could reinforce um, racial categories, I know that one conversation I was having recently with a group, a mixed group um, of people from a range of um, both ethnic and uh, I would say class backgrounds, was that they felt that, you know, using the term whiteness could reinforce some white people's sense of themselves as whiteness. And because they are not necessarily, or we, I should say, are not necessarily grappling with whiteness um, the way you mean it, um, uh, perhaps it, it could end up inadvertently reinforcing a sense of white identity, which is becoming, um, at, at least, but I guess both in America and Europe, uh, more, more, increasingly powerful as a political tool. Well, I would get back to who does it serve not to name the groups who are marginalized? Who does that serve uh, to Again, I mean, and who's most likely to say, let's not name that? Why do we have to say white? That doesn't mean that there are not people of color who would advocate for that. But that's also a very complicated, sensitive issue. I mean, there, I mean, there are a range of 
where people of color are at. There are um, differences between how people of color are racialized. Um, Anti-blackness cuts across all groups, including uh, groups of color. So, so there's there's a lot. There are a lot of dynamics there. Um, I I just see over and over that white people's inability to acknowledge or understand how their race shapes their lives actually uh, protects whiteness. So to have to name it and grapple with it and and be clear that your your racial position is shaping the way you come at this. I I. I when I don't understand a piece of something, I take it to um, a form of oppression that I am marginalized in. So I just imagine the Me Too movement and men saying, why do you have to see yourself as women, right? Isn't seeing yourself as women reinforcing the gender binary? You know, um, mm. it's mm, like, yeah. well, there is one. I mean, there is a difference and we, we have to name it. And who does it serve to just gloss that over? Um, and yeah. and I, I want to just circle back and get this in uh, before we end, which is, which is my voice should not be, white people's voices absolutely should not be the only voices on this topic, but they have to be a part of it in the same way that men have to speak up about misogyny and patriarchy and sexism. Can you imagine only women are to speak about, you know, those dynamics? No, men need to be talking to one another because they will hear one another very differently. Uh, and white people need to be uh, challenging each other and breaking with white solidarity. Uh, it's only one piece of the puzzle, but it, it's a missing piece. Yeah, and and on that note, my last question I think was was about a quote uh, recently that I'd read about um, the the American African American author Tennessee Coates who was in conversation on a U.S. Uh, campus uh, around the use of the word n uh, the n word in in an American context. It was and um, this young uh, white college student had stood up and said, "Well, you know, I, I don't think it should be used," and he sort of you know, I, I'm much more elaborately than I'm going to do now, basically said, well, I'm really sorry to break this to you. But um, as a white person, you've always felt like all spaces and all words and all conversations belong to you. But maybe there are spaces and there are words that you shouldn't be intruding on. And maybe this is one of them. Uh, how do you feel about that uh, statement, that notion? Are there spaces that maybe white people should recognize that they shouldn't be intruding in and how do you navigate those boundaries within the conversation on race do you stick to whiteness or can you talk about other issues huh well I I I, I even feel it's not my place to agree or disagree with Tennessee Coates <laughs> hmm. uh, uh, my respect uh, for him is quite deep uh, but yes I agree that it's not our place to use that word that that because of positionality, the impact is different. You know, people who don't want to name these things want to pretend that power is not at play, right? And that when everybody gets the exact same thing, then everything will be fair. But, you know, some people need more and some people need less because power is not distributed equally. You know, when a woman says to me, hey, bitch, you know, and a man that says that, there, it feels different. There's a different impact because there's a different history being brought to it. 
Um, and I mean, part of entitlement and uh, white privilege is that, you know, I get everything that I want and I do not have to be held accountable to the impact of that. You know, you know, you, yeah, go ahead, say it. You, you can say whatever you want and people will um, have a response to it. And you need to be able to hold that, you know, there'll be an impact of what you're saying. Right. Yeah. Any recommendations for uh, listeners identified as white in terms of how they can become aware of the impact of their whiteness? Well, I absolutely everyone in the British context should read uh, Rennie Ito Lodge's Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People mm-hmm. about racism, which I kind of feel like it's just it's like the other side of my book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah. here's white fragility uh, as I experience it as a black woman. Mm. Um, that's a given. David Gilborn is one. Uh, there may have other white scholars. He's just one whose work I respect deeply. Uh, he's a British uh, whiteness studies white scholar. Uh, he has a great book called um, Racism in Education, Coincidence or Conspiracy, mm-hmm. where he's talking about the, the British context. Um, Are there any I, individual yeah. things that people can do? People maybe outside of academia? Like, oh, I so, know. Yeah. Well, in, in the... Um, the the book by Lodge is certainly not an academic book. My website, robindangelo.com, has a resources page, and it's filled with lists of what white people can do. You know, 10 things you can do, 18 things you can do. You know, here's what, you know, you can say uh, instead of getting defensive. That information is is out there, and it's everywhere, and it's really easy to Google or to access. And in my experience, just breaking with the apathy of whiteness and going and looking it up, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you look up anything you were interested in, trust me, that all that is out there. Um, but a lot of white people don't aren't really going to take that initiative. They're just going to sit back and, you know, ask to be handed, handed the answer. And, you know, prove me wrong. You know, I hope that gets mm-hmm. you back. white people's backs up. Prove me wrong. Uh, but unfortunately, all too often, that's my experience. So but, change, yeah. change is going to come how then if, if white people aren't going to change themselves? Well, this is where if you don't think I struggle with hopelessness, I do. It's not going to end in my lifetime. Uh, but I, I look to tipping point theory, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's tipping point theory is that mm-hmm. you only need 30 percent to change culture. And 30%, okay, I think I can get that. It's not even 50, right? Mm. Um, and so you you kind of, it's like ripples in a pond. I just know that, you know, in order for me to sleep at night, I have to ask myself, did I align my what I profess to value with the actual practice of my life? And um, if I didn't, then I'm out of my integrity. Most white people believe, honestly, they may not have ever consciously articulated it, that all they need to do is be nice, niceness, walk by people of color on the street, smile, say hello, go to lunch, and then they're done. They're free of racism. And mm-hmm. I, I want to end by saying niceness is not anti-racism. Uh, you know, niceness is great. I'm, I'm all for nice. I'm not for mean. But niceness is not courageous it's not strategic and it's not intentional and niceness won't interrupt racism 
it, it won't get it on the table in your in your organizations when everyone else wants it off the table. You might not even be seen as particularly nice, right? It takes a lot of courage to break with white solidarity. And that's probably the first thing white people can do. Start talking to other white people about racism. You will really get an eyeful on uh, how, how it works and how white people protect racism. And hopefully it will give you insight into your own um, ways that you protect racism and less and less will you feel comfortable being complacent. Uh, and um, that that's a great start. Thank you so much. That was incredibly helpful and uh, insightful. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. In fact, I think we might have to use Niceness is not anti-racism as the title for this episode. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Guess what? It's the title of my next book. Oh, oh no way. Fantastic. Yeah, so I think it's okay if you use it. I don't think it's copyrighted. Yeah, go for okay. it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and best of luck with the book. You're so welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.